afternoon and welcome to The Loaf Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. We are delighted to be joined by poet A. Stallings. Her collection, Hapax, was awarded the 2008 Poets Prize. She is a recipient of the 2011 Genius Grant, and her latest work, Like, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize of Poetry in 2019. Thank you for joining us, Alicia. Uh, how are you today? I'm fine. I'm, uh, I'm sort of at the airport, so I'm a little flustered, but um, everything is fine. So basically, I, uh, I'd invited you to my poetry symposium to the union, which unfortunately didn't work out, but we're really glad to be able to talk to you in this interview format. You know, um, I'm really glad you managed to make the time and to kind of break the ice before we got into some more substantial questions. Um, we're just wondering about your time in Oxford and when you studied there and how you enjoyed your time back in Oxford. Um, well, it was a long time ago now. I was in there in um, 1991. I was in Lady Margaret Hall um, doing a master's degree. I'd done my undergraduate um, degree in, uh, in the States, in Athens, Georgia, University of Georgia. Um, so I think some of it, there was a lot of culture shock. It was just so very different to have tutorials as opposed to classes and that kind of one-on-one -on -one and, you know, I think the US system, there's a lot of sort of checking in with you, making sure you're fine, patting you on the back, here's a quiz, so on. And suddenly it was just like, oh no, it's all up to you. <laughs> you're kind of on your own. I mean, I had a fantastic um, tutors and I ended up learning a lot, but um, I went through a period where I think I was in a state of constant panic. <laughs> Yeah, we're still we're, we're still living in that period now. So okay, <laughs> everyone goes through that experience. Um, I was going to ask you. You've moved to Greece now. Oh, was that yeah. by your interest in the classics at all, or what inspired your move over there? Well, actually, around the time I was at Oxford, um, I met my future husband, um, John Seropoulos, who, as the name suggests, is Greek. Um, he was studying um, at uh, King's College London doing a master's in Plato. So we were both interested in classics, um, but that interest in classics kind of led maybe to an interest in modern Greece and indeed Greeks. <laughs> so um, anyway, we um, we lived in the States we, for a while. We got married and um, then we moved to Greece in 1999. So we've been here in Greece longer than y'all have been alive. So we talked to, um, we've talked to many uh, professionals within many different industries. Um, I was wondering, uh, what was your career path after you graduated from Oxford in 1991? The career path of the poet is always a kind of curious thing. Um, you know, I think if I were your age and I wanted to become a poet now, it's maybe more clear that you could do a degree in creative writing, but that wasn't as obvious in those days. There weren't so many creative writing programs. Um, so I think that was part of my interest in classics as I realized these poets I really admired had some classical background. I thought this you know, was the normal training of being a poet as you went and tried to do some classics. Um, when I was back in Atlanta after finishing Oxford, I, um, I think I considered doing a PhD. I did not do a PhD. I was for a while, um, a secretary for a professor. I, I was a very good typist. And it was this wonderful job where um, I had an office to myself. And I basically had a half time job with full time benefits. 
I was a secretary for half the day and the other half the day I was writing my poems. I wrote a terrible novel. Um, and then, <laughs> and then for a while I was a Latin teacher, which um, paid better, but um, I had much less time to think and which is very important. And then I ended up, um, when I moved to Greece, there weren't very many options for me uh, to work in a regular fashion. It, it didn't make a lot of sense. I, especially once we had children, the amount of money I would have made would have just gone into childcare. So I really kind of at that point pivoted to being more committed as a, a freelance writer. Um, which means, you know, I spend some of my time doing poetry, but some of it is what I think of as hack work. I write book yeah. reviews, I write essays, I write whatever pays some money. Um, and, you know, and speaking engagements, I was able to make a bit of money doing that. But um, yeah, being a full-time freelance writer, poet, married to a full-time freelance journalist, um, there's a lot of hustling as it were with with you know the work that pays so that you can do the work that pays off in in more spiritual ways <laughs> wow. yeah I mean you said even you yourself you had to start with a lot of normal jobs like being a Latin teacher and so on what do you think about how difficult it is to like many artistic fields make it in poetry so to speak do you think it's any easier now um well I think there's a more clear academic path if you want to be a professor of creative writing, um, that wasn't as clear to me then. And I'm, in a way, I'm grateful that I did not do that path. I know I have a lot of friends on that path and, you know, they are um, very successful and happy and they write. Um, but I think there is something healthy about a poet, you know, being somewhat apart from academia having a, a little bit of distance um not being fully embroiled in um in academia and i think you know there is a danger with creative writing you know if you're a young poet through the ages really you should be aiming to kind of piss off your immediate elders or rebel against them um not get like an a plus from them of approval. So I think there is a kind of danger of um, a certain kind of conformity, aesthetic conformity. Um, I'm not saying that that necessarily happens. A lot of poets I really admire are products of the system and participate in the system, but I feel lucky that I am able to survive as a poet somewhat on the edges of that. Um, so Lucas and I study study English. We we have the we're, we're very fortunate to hear. Um, we were having a little peruse of your uh, Twitter bio, and um, <laughs> we were struck by um, I think it's a John Keats quotation you have in there, which um, yes, unpoetical of anything in existence. Um, so my question to you is: How do you perceive your identity as a poet in relation to the poetical? and just the general beauty of things? Well, I mean, I think uh, my Twitter feed is a perfect example of the unpoetical. It's about having coffee and getting mad about political things and saying, or, you know, here are my problems today. I think, you know, 
I guess there are two sort of two takes on this one is, you know, you should be mad, bad and dangerous to know. And many a poet has been ruined by substance abuse and wild ways. Um, or this idea of, you know, the wildness should be in the work and to have the wildness in the work, um, your life needs to have some order. I'm kind of more of the second type of poet. I mean, I enjoy my glass of wine as much as the next person, probably more, but um, I, I need a certain kind of emotional calm in my life uh, to have emotion in my work, to have um, the wildness in the work. Um, I don't think, you know, if I'm if I'm super sad or depressed or angry or distraught, I'm probably not writing. That's not a time when I'm writing. Um, I guess if I'm perfectly happy and content, I might not be writing either. There's some kind of perfect medium, you know, where you're just uh, discontented enough to want to be writing it, but not so discontented that you you need to just go lie down. <laughs> so, you, so you allude to two types of poet there. Um, do you feel like being being the latter for you sort of has informed your sort of metrical style? Um, I know online in our research, we, we saw that you're a, a new formalist. Do you feel like that influences, um, yeah, just your form and not sort of writing in free verse? Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people want to attach certain things to free verse versus metrical verse. Um, sometimes it's political, but people feel that uh, people who scan and rhyme might tend to be conservative um, in their political outlook and people who are free verse might be more liberal. Um, you know, obviously that doesn't really hold true. You can just pick a handful of examples. Ezra Pound, um, sort of father of modern free verse, not known for his liberal views. Um, W.H. Auden, who writes a very tight, stanzaic kind of poetry, um, who is very left-leaning. Uh, for me, Metrical verse is a better way of handling difficult or dangerous emotions than free verse. You know, that idea is it Adrian Rich, I think, who talks about the asbestos gloves of form and it enables you to handle toxic material better. So for me, form is a better way of dealing with things that I would have trouble or might not even be able to deal with in free verse, but then I'm not very good at free verse. <laughs> um, I tend to uh, write better poetry when I have certain constraints, almost even arbitrary constraints um, are freeing to me. Oh yeah, thank you. That, that's quite insightful. Um, so you, you touched on it on the previous uh, question, but um, I was just wanted to ask um, over the um, mid-century to late century, many um, literary historians, especially within American universities, um, attach new formalism to political positions, as you alluded to, such as, you know, elitism, conservatism, uh, the preservation of cultural hierarchies. I read an article somewhere that was compared to dangerous nostalgia and literary fascism. Um, carrying on from your previous question, um, what are your thoughts about this characterization? I think it's bogus. <laughs> I, just, I don't think it holds true at all. Um, in fact, I'm reading a very interesting book right now about how it sounds outlandish but you know the woman has the receipts um how the kind of uh, mid-century 
free verse, plain American spoken style in the first person was um, very supported through the Iowa workshop by the CIA. <laughs> free verse is the government position. Um, <laughs> strangely enough, it it seems to be true. Um, obviously, I don't think the poets are doing that because of the CIA or whatever, but um, there was a kind of hegemony in American letters of a certain style of verse. Um, yes, there are poets who happen to write in rhyme and meter who are dangerously nostalgic. Um, you know, you can kind of tell by the subject matter and the diction and um, maybe their Twitter feeds or their politics, but I don't think it's automatically goes with anything. I don't believe that um, iambic pentameter is essentially patriarchal. I do know poets who profess that belief. I think the great thing about a sonnet or about iambic pentameter or anything really, um, I guess you could say it's elitist in a way in the sense that it's part of a esteemed tradition, but it's also very, very democratic because these are rules that anyone can know and that are out there. Anyone can read some sonnets and learn to write a sonnet. So I feel that, you know, that idea that anything human belongs to me. I feel um, the great thing about form is really that it's, you know, arises out of the language and out of the people. I don't believe that poetry has to be accessible. I'm not one of those poets either. I think it's fine to write for the group of people you want to write for, you know, and if you want to write poems with arcane references, I mean, my goodness, now there's Google. Does it even matter? Um, you know, you should be free to do that. And, you know, the thing is, not everyone has to like soccer. Not everyone has to like Eurovision. Uh, it's okay to kind of fight for your fan base and to, um, you know, which means including some people and putting other people off. And I think that's fine. I don't think poetry has to be the most popular thing in the world. Well, that, that's really interesting. And to kind of give the flip side of that, um, this idea of popular and um, relating that to nowadays with social media, I was wondering what your opinion was on this commercialization of poetry, which is almost this opposite of elitism with poets like Ruby Kaur and Atticus on, on Instagram. And do you feel like these, these poets have value in, in themselves or, um, or do they, for example, um, get value by helping other people? I guess, I mean... You might think, you know, does bad poetry drive out good poetry? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that these poets are taking fans away from Emily Dickinson or W.H. <laughs> Maybe they're an entry drug, you know, for people who want to get more serious. Um, there has always been bad poetry. There has always been bad popular poetry. It's okay. I just don't. I don't feel any, I don't feel threatened by this. And I think it's generally positive. I mean, I guess what I would think is great about poetry, I, I hate poetry boosterism, but I'm gonna do a little poetry boosterism, um, is every new technology that is thrown at it, poetry does really well in. I mean, it's like, you know, the alphabet. The alphabet came along and that was like the best thing that happened to Western poetry. 
it turns out you really can't write verse down in linear B script because it's a syllabary and makes it difficult. Um, but the alphabet was almost like a record player. It was almost like a recording device. It could record sounds and it could record rhythms and lengths of vowels. Um, you know, and the printed page, great for poetry. The scroll, perfect size for a book of the Iliad. Um, the Twitter, great for haiku or, you know, really tight uh, forms of expression. Um, counting your syllables, you know. Um, the phone screen, perfect size. And, you know, poets now read from their screen. I think it'd be hard to read a novel off of a phone, but it's very convenient to read a sonnet off of a phone so poetry just has this way of it's it is it's a virus it will it will outlive us all it will outlive most of the species on this planet i just don't worry about it yeah oh, thank you thank you very much so you talked a little bit about all these sorts of mediums and how poetry evolves uh, by using these different mediums and how it's nevertheless stuck around i was wondering if we could talk a little bit about uh, the evolution of poetry in terms of theory and how people approach it and that has often changed a lot throughout history as well so for example um since the essay of Roland Barthes the authority of the poet has been put into question a lot how much do you think the author's or the poet's intention should factor into a, an interpretation of one of a poem I guess I'm I'm of Robert Frost's view on this which is that anything that anyone finds in my poem I <laughs> it's fine um does it matter whether a poem is true or not very favorite poems, unfortunately not one of the ones I can quote off the top of my head, as John Crow Ransom's uh, Bells for John Whitside's Daughter. It is one of the most moving elegies for a dead child that you have ever read. Um, you know, this the little energetic girl, you know, now lying here so primly propped. I can only quote the last two words, but, um, you know, this is an entirely made up occasion. There is no John Whitside. There is no John Whitside's daughter. Does it matter? I mean, the first time I learned that, I was shocked because this poem is so gutting that you think, my God, this has to come out of a real occasion. But does it have to come out of a real occasion? It comes out of the idea of a child full of life being lifeless and still. And this is probably something John Crow Ransom had experienced on some level at some time um and it conveys a human truth so the authority of the poet i don't know i have to think about that one but um i think it doesn't matter whether a poem is literally true to have its truth which sounds very um cliche but I think you know there's something there there's something in the power of the words themselves and how they are arranged poetry you know has something in common maybe with magic and with spells of you know containing some kind of energy by the arrangement of words and sounds thank you yeah I mean you said you're ultimately not sure about the authority of the poet I kind of feel the same way even happening in my degree particularly, I've read quite a lot of theory on it, and I really still don't know where, where I feel about that. But you said... Yeah, um, see, that's the problem. Not so much theory. Less theory. Less theory for you. <laughs> yeah, and so you simplified it, right? You said, somebody points out something in my poem I like or, or I agree with or I think is a good way of reading it. You're fine with that. Do you maybe have a specific example of 
a time when a critic or just a friend or a reader pointed something out really interesting in one of your poems that you hadn't even caught on to consciously yourself? Um, I have found like patterns of things that people picked up on in reviews that I hadn't realized. Turns out I have a lot of poems about arguments or marital strife that that's a whole genre of poem. I hadn't thought of it, but it <laughs> appears to be a genre of poem. Um, and I had to think about why that was, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of underworld poems and people have asked me about that a lot. And, um, and I've given a range of answers over time. Um, you know, I would say it's about depression or at one point, I, you know, it's, it's really, it's about death or mortality. And then I also realized that during the years I was writing a lot of those underground poems, I was living in basement flats, cold, dark basement flats where the window came to about where people's feet were, including when I was at Lady Mar Margaret Hall, I was in Fifield Road in a basement flat in this cold Victorian house. And, um, you know, it gave me a feel for, for what the underworld might feel like. <laughs> I suppose that's a kind of idea of the environment influencing your your unconscious, which then kind of moves your pen. I think it's one of the things that's often behind poems. It's, it's really useful if you're studying a poem or a poet to go to that place, see that view. Um, you know, it's certainly true for ancient poets, you know, living in Greece and seeing, oh, this is this, what this person is describing is literally true. It is not a metaphor. This is exactly what happens. And um, that's something that we can gain, I think, by getting that that extra extra contextual element. I mean, certainly John Crow Ransom is one of these new critics who felt that um, you couldn't bring anything like that into the poem. Only what is on the page can be discussed. Uh, but as a poet, I am really interested in how something gets made and, you know, opening it up and seeing how it ticks. But part of that of, you know, oh, this, you know, wonderful book, like um, A Shropshire Lad, which is all about being an unhappy, you know, 21 year old or 20 year old in Shropshire is all actually written when Houseman is 35 and he's in London and he's walking on Hampstead Heath and he has failed completely his Oxford exams that he was supposed to get, you know, like a super duper first in and he like completely flunks and has to change his whole life career and becomes a patent office clerk um, in London. And, you know, reading a Shropshire lad and realizing, oh, this isn't when I was one in 20 being written by a 22 year old. This is when I was one in 20 being written by a 35 year old. And I'm, I'm really quite fascinated about how these biographical elements feed into a poem so I, I guess I wouldn't make a very good new critic I do believe in analyzing what's on the page but I'm also fascinated by the environment um, that that went to create that that object on the page um brilliant thank you uh, alluding to what you previous, uh, previously said now we're going to touch on uh, some of the classics and your passion for them um, so in addition to uh, writing poetry you happen to be a translator of ancient Greek poetry um, how does your work as a translator um, inform your poetry and or vice versa? Uh, well, it's a great thing, as a, especially if you're a lyric poet, um, to have translation to fall back on. 
um, because you know this is why lyric poets go off the rails. You know, even if I were to sit down and write the best poem that I've ever written today, tomorrow I still have the blank page and failure in front of me. So. The nice thing about translation, one of the nice things is that you have work that you can do every day that's poetic work. You're using register and diction and syntax and metaphor. You're thinking poetically, but you also get to not be yourself. I mean, often there's an emphasis in finding your voice, but once you find your voice, you you know, you spend the rest of your life trying to shake it off. So being a translator means you get to be another you, another person another gender another culture um you get to learn so much you, i i mostly translate really long didactic poems um and i've learned so much uh, about what those poems are trying to teach but also about how a longer poem is constructed and it's given me some confidence in in trying out longer forms um it's translation is a kind of deep reading as poets really the main thing we all need to be doing is reading if we're not reading we can't be expected to be writing um you know stuff has to come in for other stuff to come out uh so I'm translation is a really deep kind of of reading and um it's exciting it's a partnership i sometimes think of the translated text itself is is kind of the result of of sexual reproduction in the sense that you know some of my DNA is going to go into that. It's not a clone of the original poem. It's something slightly new. Um, so to me, it's just an exciting thing to have, but also a stabilizing thing when we're talking about that idea of having order in the work. Um, you don't have to always be in a trance of inspiration. Some days you can say, I'm going to go do my 20 lines today, and that will also count. Um, and in fact, most of my poems, when they do get written, get written as a kind of hooky from not working on translation or a book review. I think if I had nothing to do all day long, day in, day out, but write poems, I would have a nervous breakdown. I think um, the idea that poetry is an escape from other kinds of work is is useful. Wow, thank you. And that is interesting that you said you must read in order to write. My, my mom's told me that my whole life. Um, is, your, is your mother a writer? Uh, no, she's a psychologist, but she, she's very, very into reading and writing and has always pushed me into that kind of area. Um, and it's, it's also interesting regarding what you said about this idea of translation and reworking it, where it's not this kind of DNA copy, it's not a clone. And with many of your poems focusing on a reorientation of classical female characters, would you consider your poems to be part of this recurrent popular genre of feminist retellings? Well, I guess when I started doing them, there was not a, it wasn't a thing. I mean, you know, it wasn't a, a huge movement. Um, so, I mean, certainly there were feminist retellings and, you know, not all of my mythical poems are from a woman's point of view. I've got a, a poem from Katie's point of view, but I think you know, as a female poet, I do tend to enter those characters from, you know, that attitude, but really it comes from Ovid. I mean, the person to invent the feminist retellings of myth is Ovid. He has a wonderful set of poems called the Heroides, 
where it's the ladies of myth write letters to the guys that have jilted them. And, you know, it's Medea talking to Jason and Penelope talking to Odysseus. And um, it's, he is the master. He's the person who invented this. So you, you've, you've stated before uh, the ancients taught me how to sound modern. Um, so that sort of prompted me to think, what, where does your poetic creation come from? What's the inspiration for that? Is it the classical figures or is it just daily aspects of your life? Um, well, as a young writer, poet, person, I, I think like most young writers, my real goal was to get published. I felt that if I got published in journals or magazines, or I got a poem, The New Yorker, or I got a book published, I would be a real poet. I think there is this need, particularly when you're younger, to have that um, outside affirmation or confirmation. Um, so I would go and I would look at these journals. And let me tell you, you know, American poetry in the late 80s, early 90s, it, it was a lot of the stuff was really boring. And um, this kind of very flat free verse, everything was about everyday life. Um, and so I would try to write that because that was what was getting published. And then when I was reading, studying Catullus, for instance, and he's writing about love affairs and hate affairs and about somebody stealing a napkin at a dinner party and um, about what happened yesterday on the street. And, you know, he's using cuss words and he's using um, slangy words that don't belong in regular Ciceronian Latin. And he's also doing it in, you know, very tight meters, hendecasyllabic. And I think I suddenly was like, oh, I could write about anything I want to. And, you know, I can write about mythology or I can write about, you know, my actual life. And um, it doesn't have to sound like it's a boring morning in Ohio while I'm drinking a cup of coffee, which was what I was seeing in the magazines. And um, so that was just revelatory to me that uh, I felt it gave me permission um, to write the way I wanted to write and about what I wanted to write about. Thank you. Yeah, so um, to conclude, we, we, we sort of wanted to do this quite fun task with you. So um, we were going to give you a line and we were hoping that potentially you could maybe create a couple lines after for us and we could make this sort of like tiny poem together. Okay. Yeah. So, um, right. I'm not sure how how up to gear my brain is right now, but we'll give it a shot. Fine. Don't don't worry. Um, okay. So we've started with Demeter hoards her loaves of bread. So that's our that's our line. Yeah. Um, Demeter hoards her loaves of bread. She bakes them for the daily dead. <laughs> <laughs> she saves them for her daughter lost among the fields of permafrost. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Thank you so much. We, we hope you have a good night. And we just wanted to say thank you so much for, despite all the, the hectics around it. And, and um, Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. It was a little bit difficult to, to wrangle, but it seems like it worked. I hope there's not too much um, 
airplane noise and, and announce that there's one now. <laughs> it was super insightful and, and um, hopefully we can speak again in the future and, and we'll definitely send you the episode once it's out on Spotify. Okay, great. Good to talk to y'all. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you so much.